It was a little bit of the same experience that the Israelites had, you know, when God called them to leave Egypt and they didn't know where they were going and they didn't know what it was going to be like. Things changed and um, at the time we really didn't understand why they were changing. Uh, there wasn't a great reason for it, um, but it was reality and it was difficult. My name is Matt Sorensen. This is my wife, Kristen. Uh, we have three children and we've attended uh, Crossroads Christ Church for three and a half years. When we lived in Minnesota, we really thought we'd be there forever. And um, work was good initially and, um, and we felt our kids had assimilated well um, and were becoming part of sort of that world. Matt interviewed with a practice down here and um, we were just praying that God would make it clear. Make it clear if we're supposed to go there. We were interviewing with other places around the country and we just, we prayed that it would be very clear where we're supposed to be. We came home from the interview here and it was great. It was a great weekend. We got home to Minnesota and within three days, we had someone come to our home that we didn't even know and ask if they could look at our house and buy our house. And we just felt like the Lord was saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me that I will provide? Um, and we sold our house that week. It really helped cement in our minds that this is not our home. You know, earth is not our home. This is a place that we will be for a short time. And our mission is really to just bring the good news of living life with Christ to as many people as we can. I think what drew us into Christ Church initially really was the people, um, the, the people that we originally had the privilege to meet um, were those that seemed to be going through similar stages in life. Shortly after we started, uh, they decided to, to engage with the Crossroads campus. And because we live in Libertyville, uh, we decided that it was important that we be going to church in our community. And we really were trying to meet people in our community. We wanted our kids to be able to go to church with kids that they saw at school or in their sports and activities, people that we would see on a day-to-day -day basis. I think the impetus to um, engage a bit more with, with church um, includes the fact that we care about the community. And I think in effort to uh, engage with those that we would like to see come to Christ, we feel that it's important that we're, we're connected strongly with uh, a place that is strong, um, where people can come and meet other believers um, that are, again, in similar stages of life that they can connect with and uh, understand that this journey that we're on, uh, we're all kind of on together. We don't view church as just a Sunday thing. It's not just a place we go or a thing we do on Sundays. I think for us, church is, it's a family, it's a community. I think the idea of more campuses um, for us uh, is an exciting one because we are a family that moved in and a new campus really met a need that we had. Yeah, and I think a local campus um, provides an opportunity for a less intimidating experience, right? A lot of people that don't go to church um, have a sense of what church is that's, that's frankly inaccurate. And um, I think uh, any way that we can provide uh, an avenue to get through that hurdle more easily is great. And I think that's really what motivates us, the way that we've seen um, God work in our lives. We want other people to experience that and see that.
Well, good morning and welcome uh, to Christ Church. Special welcome to those joining us at Highland Park, upstairs at the 01, and at the Crossroads campus. And thanks to uh, Matt and Kristen for their story. Um, if you've been around the last few weeks, you know we've been talking about reach, and we're we're unfolding this. We're rolling into this, and so we've got plans. And locally, the plans include three new campuses, and to try and help. Uh, the local church do more among the under-resourced and then to help other churches in the area. And then globally, we've got some plans to help our global partners start churches that will reach people in renewed communities. And I think Matt and Kristen's story help us tell part of the reason for those plans, the, the other campuses. And so you sort of hear how that uh, has intersected with their life. There was a study that came out this week that noted that when a new church is started or when an old church is restarted, that it grows 170% faster in the next five years, that more people do evangelism, that more people engage and serve, that less money is spent on people by about a third uh, in order to get things going, and uh, additionally, that the churches today that are five years and under, over 50% of the people in those churches are under the age of 35. So it's, it's uh, most effective in terms of reaching younger people because churches settle into traditions, and when you want to try and uh, start new traditions, it's often helpful to start new works. And so, anyway, thanks to Matt and Kristen for their story. So, I want to tell you, um, a friend of mine, Mark Laberton, who I had preach here uh, last year, uh, Mark and I were together a while back, and we were rehearsing stories of the more embarrassing moments of being a pastor. One of the challenges of this job is that you're in front of people a good part of the time, and over the course of the years, inevitably, you say or do something particularly stupid in front of 500 people, and it's really hard to live down because there were 500 people who saw it, some of whom are never going to let you forget it. And uh, so we were telling stories, and Mark told one story that has stayed with me. So it was the first day, the first Sunday, he was at a new church. And uh, this came after he had spent two years as a study assistant with John Stott. So Mark finished his master's degree. Between then and doing his PhD work at Cambridge, he had two years as a study assistant with John Stott and then two years at this church. And John Stott uh, who, who has since gone to be with the Lord as uh, Billy Graham has. John was a very uh, prominent evangelical leader, wrote 50 books, helped start the Lausanne movement. He did all kinds of things. He was, Billy Graham used to say, John Stott is my pastor. So John was also, among other things, a very careful British academic, very specific in the words that he wrote and the words that he said. And I had an experience with this. I was interviewing him for an article um, 15 years ago, and I asked him, I said, so, uh, Dr. Stott, you have spent 60 years traveling around the world speaking, uh, lecturing, debating on university campuses. How have the questions that are asked, the, the students themselves, how has that changed over the last 60 years? And he said, well, uh, Mike, do you mean uh, students in Europe or students in the United States? 
I said, well, students in the United States. He said, okay, do you mean students at state colleges or students at private colleges? I said, state colleges. He said, do you mean students who are Christians or students who are non-Christians? And I said, non-Christians. He says, do you mean men or women? And eventually it's like, I realized he's going to whittle me down to, you know, left-handed engineering students at Georgia Tech. And I'm not going to care what his answer is, but I was unable to get out of him any sort of broad sweeping generalization. John just didn't do that. So my friend Mark had spent two years traveling around the world with John. He's now on staff at a church, fairly large church. He is, uh, he is sitting on the stage. Some churches do that. All the pastors sit on the stage, during, even during the sermon. They're looking out. So he was not the senior pastor. He was not preaching. But he's sitting up on the platform. And the senior pastor is preaching. And, and the senior pastor, fairly prominent guy as well, but not a careful British academic, tends to make broad sweeping statements, comes to a point in the sermon, and he says this. And then... We think of the most important and famous line in all of Western literature. And Mark said he's thinking, oh my goodness, what would be the most important and famous line in all of Western literature? How could you say that? And he said, two roads diverged in the forest and I chose the one less traveled by and it has made all the difference. He's quoting Robert Frost's poem. And my friend Mark, sitting on the stage, convinced this is a joke, busts out laughing. And he said, as soon as he started laughing, he stopped himself because he realized no one else is laughing. And he goes, there's silence. And he goes, and the the pastor turns and looks at him and he goes, then the whole room erupts in laughter because they realize he's laughing at what the pastor has said, which of course is the kind of things the pastor says all the time. So... Here's the deal. I'm not going to claim that Frost's famous poem is the most important or the most famous line in all of Western literature, but I am going to say this. It does a great job of setting up our text for today, Genesis 13, where we have two men who come to a fork in the road, and one of them goes one way, and one of them goes the other. The the one, the younger one, chooses to go to what if you read Pilgrim's Progress, would be referred to as Vanity Fair. If you're not familiar with, with Pilgrim's Progress, think Vegas. The one chooses to go towards Vegas. The other one goes in a different direction. And Genesis 13 rolls out as a case study for us uh, of the importance of the decisions that we make. And the refrain that it brings to my mind is that first we make our decisions and then our decisions make us. First we make our decisions, and then our decisions make us. The, the, the young man who heads towards Vegas is named Lot. The older man, uh, who is his uncle, is named Abraham. And uh, as you know, if you were here uh, last week, or just paying attention to the video, uh, For the REACH campaign, um, we are using Abraham as a template. So the REACH campaign is is five weeks long. This is week two in our rollout. 
and we are looking for 100% engagement. We're trying to get everybody involved. This is a discipleship initiative at, at its ultimate core. We're trying to help move everyone forward. We are also trying to raise money, $19 million. So if we did nothing, we would expect over the next two years to raise $12 million. That's our budget, and we're including that in the 19. And that goes to help reach, you know, to teach children, and that goes to all the local and global partners. That pays staff, that pays for buildings, that pays for alpha and single parenting classes and cancer care. That, that funds everything that we do on an ongoing basis. We're trying to raise an additional $7 million over the next two years to do the things I've already talked about. And we're using Abraham... As a, as a template for us to understand how we might be faithful. Because Abraham, for all his flaws, and he has them, Abraham does make some good decisions. He does choose to exercise faith. And he is someone that God uses. Indeed, we see that Abraham becomes uh, a friend of God. So, um, if you... Um, if you have a Bible or uh, some sort of mobile device that occasionally acts like a Bible, you can, uh, you can turn to Genesis chapter 13, and I will be reading there beginning with verse 1. Genesis chapter 13 beginning with verse 1. Now Abram went up from Egypt... He and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. So uh, two things. Please remember that in the first half of the book of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah go by the names Abram and Sarai until it's changed shortly before Isaac's birth. Also understand Abraham is a shepherd. So he's got lots of livestock, cattle, sheep, uh, and goats, and they, they travel around, semi-nomadic, traveling around the Middle East, Fertile Crescent. And uh, so, now Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and I, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So Abraham has got a lot of money. It's not just Abraham. There's a whole, there's a whole contingency traveling with him. He's got, he's got servants. He's got lots of livestock. He's traveling with his nephew Lot. It's a big party that is wandering around. And they are headed back from Egypt. They're now headed back into the promised land. They stop at this place where he had previously built an altar and they worship God. Verse 5, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. He's not as rich as Abram is. He doesn't have the gold, but he also has a lot of cattle. So that, verse 6, the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's cattle and herdsmen of Lot's cattle. So, the problem is there's so many mouths to feed. There's so much need for, for, for land, for, for grazing and for water that the land cannot support them. Now, it's possible that this surprises you because your vision of Israel is that it looks like a land overflowing with milk and honey. It looks like this. Let me pull up that picture. This is New Zealand. This is Israel. 
So when God said to the Jews when they were in Egypt, I'm going to take you to a land with milk and honey, he was talking to people who were living in an agricultural community. Egypt has got deserts, obviously, but it also has the Nile, and the Nile floods, and it brings that rich delta, and you can grow anything in Egypt. He was saying to them, milk and honey, you're not going to be farmers. You're going to be shepherds. Milk comes from goats and and cows, and the honey is going to be anything else you can find to eat. So you have to understand Israel is a unique land. God uniquely prepared a land for the people just as he prepared a people for the land. And the land was designed to to foment faith, to to create dependence. Um, I've got another slide here. Let's pull this up. This is a cross-section of Israel. So if you were to cut Israel uh, in half and look at a cross-section, you would see that there's four very distinct zones. So on the west side, you've got the Mediterranean, and then you come in and there's zone one, which is a very narrow strip of land. This is uh, not important in biblical history because this is the only passable land passageway between Africa, Europe, and Asia. So whoever the superpower of the world was at the time wanted to control trade between Europe and Asia, they controlled this passageway. Then you have this big rock. You have this big piece of limestone and sand. This is the promised land. Zone three, you drop down into the most uh, significant fault on the planet. This, this fault makes the San Andreas Fault look like a crack in the sidewalk. You go down to the lowest point on the planet not covered by water, which is the top of the Dead Sea. It's 1,300 feet below sea level. And if you go to the Dead Sea as you are driving down, because Jerusalem's up on the top of the Promised Land, as you're driving all the way down to get to the Dead Sea, you see signs say, have your picture taken at the lowest point on earth. Uh, have a cup of coffee at the lowest point on earth. Have a drink at the bar at the lowest point on earth. Because it's the lowest point on the planet. And then, uh, and by the way, you can't drink the Dead Sea even if you wanted to. Even if you make the hike all the way down. Because it's 30% salt. The ocean is about 3% salt. The Dead Sea is 30% salt. You float in like this much water. You walk out into the Dead Sea, you just lay on top of it. it, it you do nothing, you're not going to sink. Then you've got desert. As you head east, you've got the Jordan, which today is Jordan, and then Saudi Arabia. So the deal is there's not a whole lot of water in Israel. As a matter of fact, I, ha- I ripped out of uh, this week's Wall Street Journal Thursday. Uh, Cape Town may dry up because of an aversion to Israel. And the article says that, that the people in the world that know how to get by without any water are the Jews because there's not any water in the promised land. So everybody is looking to them as we head into a water crisis to figure out how you get water to live. So the land, the promised land that Abraham and Lot are in is a land that is very difficult to survive in. You depend upon God for rain and for dew because that's what you need to get by. The land will not support them if they stay together. So, 
Verse 8, Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen, right? It's uncle and nephew. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. So uh, Abraham does something that is surprising here. Because he's the guy with the power. He's the guy, the favored one. He's the one with the money. He's the older one. You would expect that what he would say to Lot is, okay, I'm the important one. I want that land. You get what's left. He would act like the older brother, right? I get the best room. I get the last piece of chicken, right? I mean, that's just the way it goes. Because I'm bigger and I'm, I'm stronger than you are. But he doesn't do that. Nor does he do what you would expect he would do next, which is to say, let's agree on how we're going to divide it before we divide it, before we figure out who's going to get what half, right? So parents, if you have more than one kid, you eventually learn it's impossible to, to, to equally divide the cookie to the satisfaction of both kids, right? They become their own Bureau of Standards and Measurements, and they scream. They're getting cheated because the other one gets the most. And so eventually you move to the, okay, you are going to cut it in half, and you get to pick first, right? That's how we're going to do this, to try and make it as fair as we can. So uh, you would think Abraham would do this. He doesn't. He says to Lot, you divide, and then you pick first. And if you, if you were standing on the mountain where they're standing looking down at the land as they divide it, you would see that Lot is very greedy and selfish. He is not thinking about Abraham at all. He divides it. I'll, here's the good part and here's the rest. I'll take this. And it's, it's sort of shocking the way he divides up the land. That's Lot. And what we're getting here is a case study between Abraham and Lot and the decisions that they make. So, Lot lifted up his eyes, verse 10, and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. So Lot is taking all that's good, And Abraham, verse 12, dwelt in the land of Canaan. Um, Verse 11, excuse me. So Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham dwelled in the land of Canaan, while Lot dwelt among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Sodom uh, and Gomorrah get, get dinged for two things, sexual immorality and inhospitality. And this is where a lot is headed, and it's not going to end well for Lot. But, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your descendants also will be counted. Arise, walk through the length of the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So God says to Abraham, 
um, after Lot has taken advantage of him, Abraham, uh, I'm pleased with the way you are living, and I'm going to take care of you. And look around, you're going to be provided for. I want to suggest that there are, there are at least three takeaways for us from Abraham's decisions as we look forward. Number one, in the contrast between Abraham and Lot, Abraham is clearly the one who's thinking about others. So Genesis 13, we're going to see it here where he lets Lot choose first. We see it again in Genesis 14 where he's going to end up in a battle and then he has all these spoils and he gives the spoils away. Abraham thinks about others. And uh, Lot is selfish. And the case study plays out to reward Abraham, not Lot. Now, I want to be clear here because when I say that Abraham is thinking about others, I don't want to suggest that Abraham is not acting in his own best interest. Because when you go to the Bible, what you see is everything sort of gets turned upside down. The way to get ahead is to go to the end of the line. The way to be great is to be a servant, right? And this is the example of Jesus. This is the teaching of Jesus, right? Who, although he's here, goes here to serve us, right? He humbles himself. And, and we're called to that. We're called to be other-centered. We're called to think and put the needs of others ahead of ourselves. We see this in Abraham. He is others-centered, and God is pleased. Number two, Abraham has an abundance mindset as opposed to a scarcity mindset. So if you just read Genesis 13 where Abraham sort of lets Lot go first, you could think that Abraham is uh, just a little passive and a little weak and he doesn't like conflict and he's not willing to sort of go toe-to-toe with his, with his nephew and it's just easier to just walk away. There are people like that. But then in Genesis 14, Abraham is going to go to battle against four kings. It, it seems that the odds are stacked against him. So he's not, he's not walking away from conflict, right? He's not somebody who's, who's, who's not willing to do the right thing even if it's hard. So you understand from that that Abraham is somebody who is actually um, not scared. He's going to do the right thing. He must be thinking either that uh, God will take care of me if I do the right thing, or there's plenty to go around, or both. Now, we live in a world, and in particular in a culture, that is driven a little bit bizarrely by a sense of scarcity. So the United States has a lot of the world's wealth flowing into it, and and we all enjoy a remarkably high standard of living. But that's not the way most people experience life. (laughs) Many people experience life thinking that uh, I'm behind and I need a bit more, and there's there's some anxiety around not having as much or some agitation around that. And... uh, that's sort of crazy because we have so much, but that is sort of the way we are shaped. We're shaped by a consumeristic culture, and 
And part of the diet of every day is, is this sense that we need more because our economy runs on the fact that everybody wants us to need more. And this gets pointed out in an article that uh, I read a year or so ago uh, that, that sort of haunted me after I read it. It's by an Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, who I don't always agree with. But Brueggemann wrote an article called The Liturgy of Abundance and the Scarcity and the Myth of Scarcity. The Liturgy of Abundance and the Myth of Scarcity. And he says that there are two dueling narratives in the Bible. One of them says, there's enough. God made a good world. God provided. Genesis 1, Psalm 1, Psalm 150, and, and we're to be generous. And, and Abraham calls on, or God calls on Abraham to be generous and to bless others. And, and, and as you go through, you see that Jesus is thinking about others and, and not being worried that there's not going to be enough, that we're to be generous. There's enough out there. The opposing narrative says there's not enough out there, and we've got to fight to get our own. And we see this developing in different places. For instance, Pharaoh sort of represents the, the narrative of scarcity. And we're going we're to imprison the Jews and make them slaves. And we're going we're gonna to hoard things. And, and that's a narrative that is also out there. And so there are these dual narratives. And for the most part, the narrative of scarcity tends to play out. Although, when you see... Uh, through the Old Testament, you see that whenever the Jews trusted God, God provides. Even if it's water out of a rock and bread falling from the sky. And when Jesus shows up, there's always enough. Everybody gets healed. The food, you know, you take a little boy's lunch and he feeds 5,000 and there's 12 baskets full, right? There's this, there's this idea, there will be enough, there will be enough, there will be enough. So there's these two narratives out there, the, the narratives of scarcity and the narratives of abundance. And it's obvious that Abraham buys into the narrative of abundance. There will be enough. And I would suggest to you that uh, we probably need to focus on how full the glass is, not how, how empty it is. And that life actually works better when we do that. And there's a lot more joy when we do that. I got a call a few weeks ago from a friend, and he says, I got I to tell you what just happened to me. He said, I was... Uh, uh, I was at McDonald's. He said, I went to McDonald's. He goes, but for some bizarre reason, I didn't get out of my car. He says, I stayed in the car for about 20 minutes in the parking lot of McDonald's. I'm, I'm answering emails. I'm, I'm reading uh, the news feed. I'm doing all this stuff. And he goes, two or three times, I keep thinking, what are you doing? You're, you're sitting in a parked car in McDonald's. You're not a guy that hangs out in a parked car in McDonald's. Go into the restaurant already. And he says, but I, I kept not doing it. And he goes, and then after 20 minutes, I finally got up and I went in. And he says, there was, so it turned out there's like nobody in the McDonald's uh, except one person in front of me besides those that were working. And he says, I'm standing behind the guy who's ordering and he keeps changing his order. And he says, I'm not paying attention. And then eventually I start to realize he's changed his order several times because he's short of money. And he said, so I stepped up and I said, look, how much do you need? And he said, I need need 30 cents. And he said, so I took out a dollar and I gave it to him. And he goes, I'm I'm fine. He goes, well, thank you. He goes, my son. And he goes, 
goes, it's a long story, but my, I wanted to get something for my son to eat. And he said, I, you know, he says, I, 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 I'm a pastor, but things aren't going so well. And they haven't been able to pay me. And, and uh, my son's out in the car, and I really wanted to get him something. And, and my friend said, he looked out, and he sees the car. And he says, it's obvious that this is not somebody who has been, it's not somebody used to not having enough money to buy something for their kid to eat at McDonald's. And he says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry you're having such a difficult time. And he goes, well, you know, um, God will provide. And my friend said, I'm sitting there, and he says, excuse me, I'm a little slow here. And he says, I reach back into my billfold, and I take out a $20 bill, and I go, get, get your kid what he wants. He says, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad to help, right? I'm sorry you're in a difficult spot. I'm glad to help. And he said, this guy was so effusive with his thanks. Like he goes, I knew God would provide. God always provides. I knew God would provide. And he goes, he goes, he leaves and he's, he's, you know, all excited and he's got what his son wants to eat. And it was, it was a great day. And he goes, and I'm, I'm feeling good. And he says, for 20 bucks, I'm in a good mood. You know, it's like, cause it was just shocking to me. So yes, it's really feels good to be generous and, and uh, to sort of dial in on the needs of others. And another story, there's, there's enough out there. So uh, a number of years ago, I was traveling in Africa with a friend of mine. He was a senior officer with World Vision, and this guy's always in the worst parts of the world. You know, who goes to the Congo during a civil war? Who goes someplace where there's a cholera epidemic? Who goes, you know, where the, where, where the floods have just devastated everything? Journalists, uh, relief workers, and the CIA. And my friend, who's recently retired, when you travel with him, you realize he was always getting tagged as being a CIA agent because he was always in those places for his career. That's where he went. So I'm with him on one of these trips. And uh, I said, wow, I've, I'm just really frustrated and discouraged when you see all this need and the pain and the want. And the, I go, don't you, don't you just wonder, God, what, why don't you do something about this? And he says, well... Obviously, I'm frustrated with the need. He goes, but I don't ask God why he doesn't do something about this. He said, because we can fix this problem. He goes, look, we've run the numbers. And he said, if you take the, the, the global Christian income annually, it's like $1.5 trillion. He says, if, if, if Christians gave 10%, he said, we could immediately... Uh, get everybody out of abject poverty. Additionally, we could provide a sixth grade education to everybody that doesn't have at least that. We could provide clean water to everyone in the world. We could provide the medical care uh, for the most destitute. And we could double every church and every relief agency and every mission agency's budget. And we would have $500 billion left over every year that we didn't know what to do with. He says, the money's there. He says, we just, we just have to understand that we have to make different decisions. So, point number three. Abraham thinks of others. Abraham has, a, a, has an abundance, not a scarcity mindset. Number three, Abraham has faith. And what he gets complimented for here and, and then again in Hebrews chapter 11 is that Abraham is willing to trust God. He, he runs those risks. And I want to encourage you to be someone who is willing to run those risks and to trust. So um, 
it's clear that Genesis 13 is set up as a case study for us to see the lives of two different people. And that first we make our decisions and then our decisions make us. Right? We are shaped by how we spend our time, how we spend our money, what we do. We're shaped by that. And I would believe not just shaped now, but for all of eternity we get shaped by that. And we have options. So I was going back this week and, and reminding myself of uh, the context of Joshua 24, which is a passage many people put up on, a, on their wall. And you might remember that the Jews, when they come out of Egypt, do not immediately go into the promised land. They, they decide not to, and for 40 years they wander around in the desert. And there's warnings in Deuteronomy 30 where they're told, you do not want to make this decision, you do not want to make this decision, you do not want to make this decision, right? You're going to make this decision and you're going to regret it. But they make the decision. And then, in contrast, 40 years later, we have Joshua now in charge, not Moses. And Joshua says, Joshua 24, very famously, because they've got another decision like this. And Joshua says, look, you choose what you're going to do. As for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. You've probably seen that passage. You choose who you, this day you choose who you will serve. As for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. And I want to encourage you, you want to be with Joshua on that. Now, I'm out of time, and I just want to acknowledge uh, that, that uh, during campaigns like this, pastors tend to make people mad. It's not my goal to make you mad. Uh, but it's not my goal to try and avoid making you mad, uh, right? That's just not the job. Uh, the job is uh, laid out, and there's a passage that I have looked at a couple times this week. It comes out of the pastoral epistle. So there are a number of letters that were written uh, by Paul to young pastors. And so they get called the pastoral epistles because they're specifically for pastors. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, Paul, writing to pastors, ostensibly, says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share in this way. They will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the age to come, so they may take hold of life that is truly life. Men and women, I want to say um, there's joy in being generous. There's joy that comes in following God. Uh, First we make our decisions, then our decisions make us. And there is a road that forks, and you want to be sure that you follow Abraham, not Lot. Let me pray for us. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for... um, your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you that our relationship with you does not depend upon uh, our obedience because we are so broken. We are too broken to consistently do the right thing. But we thank you that Christ has done everything that needs to be done for us. And we thank you for a chance to follow him from that position of being forgiven. Father, help us to be people who think about others. Help us to be people who understand you're a good God who provides what needs to be provided. Help us to be people who embrace faith. Guide us as individuals. Guide us as a church. Use us to your glory. Help us lay up for ourselves that foundation 
uh, for the age to come as Paul admonishes us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.